everyone this is marcel and this is isabel and you are now listening to the top rank podcast for any new listeners our podcast is an exploratory research platform centered on people of diverse backgrounds who are driving and shaping the world around them on our episode today we are joined by mims an artist abolitionist and facilitator based in los angeles california whose work spans dance advocacy facilitation, curation, and direction. MIMS is also the mind behind Uncle Ronnie's Room, an art-driven campaign to mobilize the general public and media around the story of Ronald Coleman Jr. and Carl Coleman's wrongful conviction over 20 years ago. At just 29 years old, Ronald Coleman Jr. was sentenced to two life sentences plus 65 years for a murder case that he was not involved in. Ronnie is currently incarcerated in Calhoun State Prison in Georgia, where he has lost 22 years of his life and counting. Through exploring his childhood, this project titled Uncle Ronnie's Room takes us deeper into who Ronnie is as a person, information about his case, and also the impact that his incarceration has had on his family. This work invites attendees and its audience to imagine what Ronnie could have done with these 22 years of his life create space to collectively tap into the guidance of spirituality and ancestors and questions the system at large. Mims, thank you so much for making the time to join us today and talk a bit more about um, this project that you've been working on. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you all for having me. I appreciate being here. I think it would be really important to start off by just getting a bit more of context about your uncle Ronnie and this this situation that he's in his case. Um, so perhaps we can learn more about that and also get some insight into when it occurred to you that you could apply your own creative practice to draw attention to his wrongful conviction. Yeah, um, before I get into that, um... How much detail do you want me to go into about the case? I think whatever whatever you're comfortable with sharing um, is, you know, the thresholds for us. So I think we'll take your lead on that. Okay, sounds good. Um, well, my uncle Ronnie, he is the oldest of four siblings, and my folks are from the South, which I feel is very important. He grew up in Augusta, Georgia, and a lot of our family also re re uh, resides in Savannah as well, so he spent a lot of time there too. Um, you know, we're Southern people, and so Southern people and history and culture and the ecology of the place really shaped him. Um, and I named that because Black people in the South have a very specific kind of history, culture, and relationship to the world. He loved playing sports, playing a bunch of um, different types of instruments. And um, at some point in his 20s, um, he found himself in the streets. He was living this very fast life that involved a bunch of nonviolent, harmful acts. And that's how his name became known by many people. 
Um, and like you mentioned before, he is sentenced to two life sentences plus 65 years, and he's currently in Calhoun State Prison in um, Morgan, Georgia. Um, before the Sam's case, which is what um, this case that this project talks about, which he was wrongfully convicted for, um, he spent um, some time in prison for things like marijuana and tax fraud. Um, and so the Sam's case took place in 1998. Um, and they have been trying to solve this case for about two years. It was um, the largest case in Augusta, Georgia history. It was on billboards on America's Most Wanted twice. And I believe there was like a $400,000 uh, reward involved. Um, so basically what happened is the Sam's was robbed. The manager was kidnapped and killed. Um, and I do want to hold space for the family. Um, I never want to dismiss the tragedy of the situation and the absence of this person's presence and the pain of their family and, and what they're still experiencing. So I honor that family and the spirit of the manager. Um, but in 2001, my uncle and his friend's names are brought to the feds by someone named David Easterling. Um, and again, this is two years into the investigation. This, this, case, this incident took place in 1998, and this is in 2001 when David Easterling brought their names um, to the feds. So what happened is he got married and he came back from his honeymoon and his wedding photos were in the newspaper celebrating his wedding. Um, and David Easterling, he was already in prison and he was about to go to trial and to be sentenced uh, to death row. So he and his roommate um, came up with this plan to get him a lesser sentence and so they could split the reward money. So David went to the feds on January 17th and he basically admitted that he did this crime with um, some folks and basically bribing them saying he would give if he would tell who he did this with if they give him a lesser uh, penalty, meaning he, he was trying to get off the death row. So he listed my uncle and a bunch of the groomsmen that was in the picture with him in the wedding photo. Um, now my uncle and David don't know each other. They haven't met each other, but since my uncle's name was known in the streets, um, it was an easy thing for him to make up and for them to run with. Um, the DAs and the investigators, uh, I guess, I mean, I, I think that they were happy that they could do this because they had been trying to get him off the streets for a while. Um, so yes, the, David Easterling told this to the feds January 17th, around 5.30 p.m. The next day, January 18th at 8 a.m., the, the first indictment was drawn. And here's where things start getting even more questionable because they've been trying to solve this case for two years. These folks' names have never come up, but someone gives them um, this information, this story. They have no physical evidence and they just take it and they run with it. Also, the body was found in South Carolina and they're not check technically charged with the murder charge because since the body was in South Carolina, um, they wouldn't charge him with murder. So Georgia charged them with as much as they could. Also, when the indictment was, was uh, the first indictment was drawn and signed was January 18th, as I mentioned, which was a Thursday in 2001. 
and the grand jury only meets on Tuesday. So there's a lot of questions up in the air about who actually signed the indictment. And these are not questions just on my end. If you read through the transcripts, these were questions that were also asked during the trial. Um, and then the one of the largest red flags is that Jermaine, who was one of the groomsmen who David uh, Easterlin listed, um, since this happened two years ago, he was not even, he was in prison when this incident happened. So they ended up having to drop his name and so at that point, they should have questioned the whole testimony of David Easterling, but they didn't. They just dropped Jermaine's name. And on January 23rd, they just drew a second indictment. Five weeks into the trial, David Easterling came forward and also um, admitted that, uh, that he made this all up and told this to his lawyer. Um, and the investigator refused to bring this information from trial. And that those documentations are also in the transcripts as well. So there's just layers and layers of things that are wrong, even the way in which the indictment is drawn illegally. And I don't need to get into detail about all of those things, but I'm in the process now of trying to find a racketeering lawyer because um, racketeering is the sixth count that is um, on the indictment. And there's just so many things that um, are wrong with how the indictment is drawn. If you have more questions about that, I can elaborate more, but um, that's kind of where I'm at now um, is trying to um, get into understanding um, the racketeering aspect of the indictment because state racketeering is only 20 years max and they've been inside for 22 years. Um, so that's an angle that I'm interested in, in pushing. Um, and this project really just came about through a conversation with my aunt because I was having trouble finding a criminal defense attorney and I was running into the same problems, which I'm still running into right now, um, that my family has been running into for the past 20 years, which is people not taking on the case, um, uh, people trying to scam us, pretending to be lawyers. And then also, you know, if we're hiring an investigator, the city is really corrupt. This whole case is really corrupt. So these people are disappearing and being paid off and all of these things are, are happening. Um, so what my aunt was suggesting is that, you know, if we don't mobilize people in the media around Ronnie's story, um, then, you know, no one's probably gonna take on this case. We need to, we need to uh, mobilize people. We need to have, you know, people pushing this out in the media. So, um, yeah, that's where where the idea was birthed of figuring out how to share his story, how to mobilize and organize people um, to push to get his case reopened. Wow, that is what I mean, the, the details that were in the first documentary episode that you released about your project, you know, were already appalling, but to hear this deeper layers of just the intentional malfeasance behind this is just like honestly unspeakable. I'm very, very happy that Marcel and I can be part with this podcast of bringing attention to the story. Um, I had no idea that a that someone in the prosecution could actually walk their story back and it wouldn't be taken into account by the lawyers. I mean, of course, I'm sure that's illegal, but I've just never heard of such a thing. Yeah, there's a lot of illegal things that are, that are in the case and that are blatantly in the transcripts. I'm like, if someone would just read this, it actually doesn't make sense. There's no evidence at all, like zero, besides this man who made up this story and he 
already said he he recanted his statement to his lawyer. And where is he now? He's also in prison. He's still in prison, yeah. Wow. Um, well, I mean, you sort of already answered our next question, which is, you know, what inspired you to create this project? I mean, it seems very clear that, um, I mean, there's so many layers of import in this, but also just a very real urgent necessity of trying to put some kind of public pressure on someone to, with the credentials, I guess, to, which is also, I, I mean, part of the layers of why this is so complicated and disturbing is that you, is that despite how many lay people could read this and say, and you and I could read this, this transcript and say, well, this is crazy, you actually need someone licensed to make that call. Um, so, I mean, if you could speak perhaps more, since we know what, what, what your impetus in creating it is, could you speak more to what you are hoping that people will take away from this in their understanding of mass incarceration, what they, um, what they think and feel about that, and perhaps like some of the pre, um, preconceived notions or misinformation that you think that, that people might currently think. And I was also yeah. wondering too, just to insert in there, because the project, it seems like the, like the core of the project is around recreating like a physical installation of recreating your uncle's childhood bedroom. Mm -hmm. So also wondering, I know there's some really like five million questions at once, but if you could speak to maybe also like the, the inspiration behind, you know, recreating his childhood room and, and what you're hoping that people take away from that. Yeah. Um, so again, sharing his story is what the overall goal is to, to organize people to get his case uh, reopened. But there's also other things like uh, just seeing the impact incarceration of, of um, his incarceration, how it has impacted our entire family. Um, also a space to humanize incarcerated people, um, but also humanizing everybody involved in the story. I'm really interested just in my practice overall and conflict and us being able to address the root of our problems. And um, I think when we perpetuate a lot of these binaries of like deserving versus undeserving and villain and victim, um, we deny the complexity and the, and the root of things. And so even in regards to David Easterling, I'm not trying to um, dehumanize him in, in the story at all. Um, so for me, I think another layer of transparency about my uncle's time in the streets, even though he was participating in, in nonviolent things like um, marijuana, which I go to the dispensary here in Los Angeles and buy marijuana now, which is it's crazy, but he did do time for that. Um, I, I do like to be uh, transparent about some of those things that he, he has participated in. So I, I think yeah, I, I think that is really just about sharing his story and organizing people. And for me, um, in my one of my past projects, Jailbed Drop, um, I saw the importance of people connecting to um, people's items, things that have memory and lived experiences. So that's why I chose to go to the pod and get his things out. Um, and to recreate his um, childhood bedroom so people could walk through and um, see his life and hear directly from him and see what type of person he is and connect with him as, as much as possible. 
Um, so that's where that um, idea came from. And I can't, it just expanded from that point into um, the altar space, the billboard, the docu-series, the performance. And um, I think it was really beautiful because when I was looking for a space to do this, I wasn't necessary, I wasn't looking for old jail cells. Um, that's just what I happened to find on the first place I went to. Um, and so for me, it also, it was, it was like alchemy to turn these old jail cells into his childhood bedroom and into an altar space to honor him and to um, share his story. Wow. I mean, the, the project itself is a really expansive endeavor that has like several different components. It's the the, the installation of the room, you have performance, you have this, the billboard, you have this docu-series. So to give our listeners more of a sense of all these components, could you, could you talk more, a bit more about them? Like what are the different elements of the project and how do you like envision all these aspects coming together to yeah, get the word out about your uncle's um, case? Yeah. So I'll start with the room. Um, so the room is set up at Chico's Justice Center, again, in these old jail cells. And so one of the cells has been turned into his childhood bedroom with his actual um, items from his childhood. And you, there's an archival wall where you can see all sorts of pictures and certificates and cards and all sorts of things are on that wall. Um, but there's also a letter from him inside of the room. You can play some of his um, record, some of his favorite records. Um, you can listen on a boombox to conversations between him and I. And then on the TV, um, there's archival footage from um, like old um, VHS tapes um, that folks can watch as well. Um, and so this is again, just to connect with him, to learn more about who he is as a person. Um, and you hear a little bit of, about the situation via the letter and um, in the headphones as well. And then across the way is this altar space that, um, yeah, as soon as I walked into this jail cell, there's this like bench. And as soon as I saw it, I didn't even have the idea for this, but I saw a pew and I saw um, like, church folks sitting on a pew and like being from the south like I saw these church hats and I was like oh this is like an altar space and so I really love the south I love the trees in the south and so we built um the altar space inspired by the trees in the south and I went um I had some monsters on my own personal altar space from my great-grandparents um yard in Savannah Georgia and uh, they were organizers in the South during the civil rights era. And as I was going through the pod, I also found some programs of like, uh, from when my grandpa, great grandpa spoke on, you know, programs with MLK and just some of the, some of the um, work that he did during the civil rights era. And so um, it, then I started moving into this space of, oh, this is also um, a, this is also a time to consult with my ancestors because I actually don't know what I'm doing, but I need I need guidance and I need them to help me. And so um, that space was built was built to 
call on the ancestors, but also the plant sisters at the same time. Um, and what I also loved about this space, there was a projection of my grandma from the docu-series that lived in the space, just kind of honoring her. But there was also images of like black folks um, like shouting in church. And there's so many layers to that. But I, I love the elements of um, in African spiritual practices, you know, you really honor nature and the divinity uh, in the trees and consulting with the trees. So to have this, this sort of black church, Christian sort of shouting moment, which is also very connected to uh, African spiritual practices, but I think a lot of black folks see it as separate and there's a lot of tension between if you practice Christianity and African spiritual practices, to have them both in the altar space room at the same time felt really beautiful and it felt really true to me. <laughs> at, um, so I really love that. Um, and so anybody who came by, whether it be the day of the performance or during that whole month, the installation was open, they could write a prayer and leave it in this basket. And inside of the basket were all of these things that my grandma collected from around the house during their childhood and while they were growing up. Pieces of their old Christmas trees, rocks, shells, nuts off the trees in the front yard. And she gave, I found jars and jars of these things that she collected. So again, um, the lived experience, the memories of, of these sort of natural elements that have been shaped by my uncle, but also shaped my uncle um, in the space. Um, again, uh, consulting the plant sisters and the ancestors at the same time. And during the performance, um, there were, I worked with a church and some folks from their choir sat on the pews that are facing this this altar that's built in this old cell and they sung some of my great grandparents' favorite songs. And that was so um, beautiful and healing. So for me, the performance was like a prayer. Um, I danced to one of the songs and that's what it was. It was a call, it was a prayer, it was a, a space for us to gather and to be in ceremony um, with everybody who was there, a space for folks to connect, to heal, to grieve um, in many different ways. And then the docu-series is really just um, following this process. So the first one that you all saw was the pod. Um, and that was just about the experience of having my whole family come together to Georgia and go through this pod together and go through my uncle's stuff, which, yeah, there's so much just in that element. So for people to understand you know, the process of how all of this was birthed and the layers and layers of work that my family had to do and the way in which this project shifted my family and the conversations that we had to have for this to even be birthed felt important to share um, alongside of the work. And so um, that was the docu-series. And the billboard was also a part of For Freedoms and um, justice by any medium necessary campaign that they did. So it was a part of a larger billboard series, but um, I was like, I have no idea what I'm gonna put on this billboard. And I knew I needed to use it for Uncle Ronnie's room. And so that's kind of what uh, spearheaded for me to get the project done in like a month or two, because I was like, oh, I'm being asked to make this billboard. Um, I know that I need to, 
you know, uh, mobilize people around my uncle's story. This is a good opportunity to do so. So I need this whole project to be complete by then. And at that time, um, the only idea I had was the room. So um, in that process, when I was asking my grandma about my great grandparents' favorite songs, I just started um, Googling them to listen. And the first song I Googled was Hold to God's Unchanging Hands. And I kid you not, the video has like the lyrics on billboards and on this old like TV, like the one in Uncle Ronnie's room. And it just felt like, it didn't even feel like I knew it was a moment of con confirmation that I was going in the right direction. And so I um, immediately thought of this image of my great grandpa holding my uncle as a baby. And I was like, that image has to be on the billboard. Um, and so I, I pulled a collection of images of my uncle as a child alongside uh, with the help of Minhan Vu and uh, that image of my great grandpa holding my uncle. And I also played off of my great grandpa's last documented interview speaking about his work um, around Brown versus Board of Education. And so the last words, it's a digital billboard. The last words on the billboard are play off of um, the last words he said during his interview around not being complacent. So it says, um, we must not be complacent, let us pray. Again, an ancestral call um, and also a way to mobilize people towards um, the Uncle Ronnie's Room project um, and campaign. And um, yeah, the whole process was really beautiful. Um, there were a lot of moments of, oh, this is a, this is, this is a sign you're going in the right direction. Even the, uh, where the billboard was placed, um, I remember they originally told me it was gonna be in Miami. I was like, no, that doesn't make sense. It needs to either be in LA or, or it needs to be somewhere in Georgia. And so they ended up just finding um, a place in Atlanta. And um, I was on the phone with my uncle, just talking to him. I don't even remember what we were talking about. And he mentioned, he was talking about his first lawyer. He was like, yeah, my first lawyer on Peachtree Street in Atlanta. And I was like, you know, that's the exact location that the billboard's gonna be? He was like, really? I was like, yeah, it's literally on Peachtree Street in Atlanta. And he was like, oh yeah, that was where my first lawyer for the case was. And I was like, that's another moment of confirmation. Keep going, keep going. And so um, the process has been really beautiful. Um, just connection with my ancestors, my great grandpa who I never met. Um, to be, I feel like, in communication with him has been beautiful, but to also um, connect with my uncle in a different way, because I felt like a lot of the work that uh, I had to do for this project to get done, I had to have a lot of conversations with him that I've never had before. And my whole entire family had to come together and have conversations and unpack wounds that we never unpacked before. So I am um, grateful um, for the process. The, uh, like my aunt said, she was like, this process is really important. Wow. Um, this is so like complex. I mean, it's really amazing just the level of immersion and I guess like multifacetedness of all the elements of this. And I, and I think like, as we were both, you know, getting to know the different components of this, we were wondering um, are there any particular inspirations that you draw from when it comes to your art making style, like 
perhaps, I mean, other artists or even things that are outside of the realm of, of art history or even like your approach to, to producing art as activism? Like, are there, any, are there any references that were resonating with you? To be honest, not a whole lot. Um, I'm inspired by a lot of people's work. So I think, actually, I take that back. I would say a whole lot. I'm inspired by a lot of people's work. Um, I also feel like I'm just inspired and entangled with everything around me. And that inspires me in a very subconscious way. So I can't pinpoint anything specific, but I would say everything is kind of shaping the way in which I move. Um, and I don't know, I'm all, I always like want to move away from, you know, flattening the work to saying it's, it's activism, this thing that I think is just simply, um, you know, you're stating a stance on um, on something. Uh, maybe you're saying this is wrong, or I believe this, or we should do this type of thing. I don't know. Activism seems like describing the work as activism seems flat for me. Um, it doesn't seem like round as round and as entangled as I feel like I try. I make my work, and it, I don't even think I try. It's it's really like a flowing um, type of thing. So, um, yeah, I don't really, yeah, I never really describe it as um, activism, but I understand how people see it as activism. Yeah, that's a really interesting point to just think about how the work is being framed and your relationship to it. And perhaps maybe activism sounds, yeah, this is like a way of life for you. This, it's, it's, it's sounding like this is like your family history, this is like very immediate and perhaps like activism, I don't know, may sound like detached. Um, so I guess I, it's, it's really important for you to like, I think make that distinction and um, interesting to also hear your rationale as to why. And I think too, like, as we've been immersing ourselves in the work that you're doing, also hearing too about your ongoing conversations with your uncle Ronnie about the process of you creating these works, could you talk? Uh, could you talk some about your experience collaborating with your uncle on this while he's incarcerated? Would you call it a collaboration um, between the two of you for 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 this work? And perhaps, like, what role has he had in this process? Yeah, I would definitely call it a collaboration um, because I had no idea what his room looked like. And I had no images of it. And what was crazy is as I'm going through like footage and I'm like um, talking to him, I realized that my first bedroom was his room at my grandma's house. But I had no idea until doing this project. So it was just so many layers of things. I was like, what? This is crazy. But it was really beautiful um, on so many levels. I guess the first... Um, it's just, I also grew up in my grandma's house, which is where he was as well. So hearing his experience and his perspective and just hearing little things like the fact that my grandma's house has like all had this, had all this olive green color. And he was like, like I hated that olive green. When I tell you I drove all around LA to find olive green carpet so that <laughs> the carpet inside of the cell was olive green on the floor. 
it's just those little details, even if nobody noticed them, noticed them were so important to me. Um, I loved hearing about his breakfast and the thing, the like he loves bacon, egg and cheese, but he hates any sauces on his food. Like all of these little, like just nuances um, felt so special to me, but also having like real um, and deep conversations with him about his life and what led him uh, to his time in the streets and what he was searching for and how he feels now um, being inside um, and what he's experienced and um, just the layers and layers and his relationships to our different family members. All of those conversations, um, from the details, the little details that you know people might not think matter to the real hard conversations, um, felt so equally valuable and special to me um, to be able to have with him. Um, so yeah, it definitely was a collaboration because I wouldn't have been able to build the room without him. And it was so funny because he was like, oh, I'm not creative. I have no idea what I was trying to figure out, You know what we should do art-wise to share his story. And he is so creative and brilliant that I'm like, I don't even want to call myself a creator, a creative anymore, because this man's mind um, is truly, truly like brilliant in so many um, different ways. Um, and I went to see him a couple of weeks ago when I was in Georgia. And he just has, he's full of ideas and the his mind is strategic and it's creative and it's innovative. Um, and I'm just like, I would have never thought <laughs> of any of this. Um, just like the business ideas and different things that he's he's thinking about and how he sees the world uh, is really special. So um, I'm happy that we got to um, build his room together. It was a really special time for both of us. We would love to know what, well, I mean, obviously there, there's a very clear goal with this project regarding the outcome of this situation and and just like expediting that in any type of way. But, be, but in leading up to that goal, what are some other future plans that you have for this work? Um, you know, and that also includes like, what are other ways that people can find out more about it or can, can amplify the story? Like obviously this podcast is, is but one way, but if you could speak to the audience about what they could do for you and for Uncle Ronnie. We would love to hear that. So there's a couple of things. Um, I was actually just in Georgia. So before I left to go to the continent, I actually reached out to David Easterling's lawyer who wrote this five page memo um, saying that he recanted his statement. And as soon as I talked to him and I was like, oh, I am Ronald Coleman Jr.'s niece. I don't know if you remember this case 20 years ago. He was like, oh no. Like, I remember this case. I will never, I will never forget the situation. He was like, you can come in my office when you get back and I'll help you create a plan free of charge because he just knew how outright wrong the situation was. Um, and so when I got back from the continent, I got there and um, a part, let me just backtrack a second, a part of the process for um, the first event that we had we had people send in letters to the district attorney asking him to reopen this case and expressing to him some of the things that are just outright wrong. 
with how everything went down. Um, and so I basically, he's, he stopped responding to my calls. He wouldn't pick up the phone. And I also met with some other, another, another person in Augusta, who's like a liaison between the community and some of the city officials. And he's like, no, the DA is aware he got the letters. And so what we're thinking is what happened in the beginning is that they scared him again to silence him, which they have done with a lot of people. The, the first time at the beginning of the case, they said if he brought, he brought the memo to, to court, um, that they were gonna shut down his practice. So I don't know exactly what was said to him this time, but he was very open. He's the one who invited me to his office. And now <laughs> there's no, he's completely silent. I can't even get in, get a hold of him. Wow. Um, so what we have shifted to is trying to um, contact a racketeering lawyer because there's a lot of things wrong with the indictment in terms of there's counts one through five is one group of people and that's for the Sam's case. Uh, count six is the racketeering charge, which uh, is just my uncle and Cece. And Carl Coleman is actually not related to my uncle. They just have the same last name and people get confused by that sometimes. But uh, a racketeering charge uh, has many predicate acts inside because it's, it's like organized crime. Um, and so to have a racketeering charge and then to have counts one through five on the same indictment is very questionable because all of the predicate acts have to be included in the racketeering charge. That's why the racketeering exists. Um, and so that's a, a point that we want to talk to a racketeering lawyer about, and there's no other case that does this. And then the fact that there's two different groups of people, two different situations on one indictment doesn't make sense. And then, like I said earlier, a racketeering charge is only a state racketeering charge, which is what he has is only 20 years max. And he's been inside for 22 years. Um, so that is legally, that's my next point is talking to a racketeering lawyer. Um, in terms of more so the project, I really wanna bring the project to the South in Georgia um, to start mobilizing and organizing people there. Um, so that is something that I have been thinking about. Um, and then after I speak to a racketeering lawyer, I will be able to give folks another call to action that um, have been involved in LA to figure out on a legal or political level what we can do to push to get this case reopened. Um, but honestly, Augusta is really corrupt. I think it's gonna have to take um, a lot of um, media attention. And I have some ideas that I'm not quite ready to share yet um, about you know, things that we can do to really get uh, media involved. And I think it has to be something really disruptive because um, like I just found out when I went to Georgia to meet with this guy, they're silencing people because there's a lot um, of things that would come out if this case is reopened because a lot of things are illegal in terms of what was done and they're covering up for themselves. So um, I would just say stay active um, on the social media in terms of uh, if you want any updates 
Um, right now, there's no actions outside of sharing the story. If you want to share the docu-series, if you want to share some of the flyers. Um, also, if folks want to organize events to share the docu-series, um, you know, alongside of an organization or another project, I'm open to collaboration. But right now, I think sharing his story is the best thing until I get the next call to action um, for folks. Um, and if anybody knows any racketeering lawyers to connect me with, that's also something that could be helpful. Yeah, for, for our listeners, for anyone who wants to get in touch with you about collaborating, who want to follow the, the progression of your project of this case, what's the best way for people to contact you and learn more about Uncle Ronnie's Room? Yes. So Uncle Ronnie's Room does have an IG, so you can follow that and I'll uh, keep folks updated. Um, my, I also have a personal IG, which is uh, BJ underscore MIMS, M-I-M-S. Um, I update folks there as well. You can also directly message me on either one of those platforms or you can email me. And my email address is Brianna, B-R-I-A-N-N-A-J MIMS, M-I-M-S at gmail.com. And so, um, yeah, either one of those ways you can directly um, contact me. And or the product can, itself has a website? I'm sorry. Yes, the project has a website, the project has an IG, and the project has an email, um, which is general at unclerroniesroom.com. That's also on the IG if you want to go, and on the website if you want to contact us through there. Um, so either one of those are great ways to get in contact with me, and I'll get back to you. Amazing. Um, thank you so much for making time to speak with us today. As Isabel said, I just want to echo, like we're honored to be able to play a small part in um, sharing your work and sharing your uncle's story and your family's story. Um, this type of state sanctioned kidnapping that's been going on for centuries is an absolute travesty and crisis on every level. And so um, thank you for doing the work that you're doing to bring attention to um, these situations. And we're certainly going to keep in, in the loop and keep in touch. And we're really um, hoping and, and praying that, um, yeah, your work realizes your uncle, um, your uncle's release and for the tr truth to really come to light. So sending all that energy, you and your family and your uncle's way. Thank you so much. I appreciate y'all. It's mutual. Well, for all listeners, thank you for joining us. Um, as always, we are on Instagram and um, at Child Parent Podcast, and, and you can find and stream this episode on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. So thank you, and until next time. Here's a message from Mims on how you can further support Uncle Ronnie's room. You can also support this project and uh, support Uncle Ronnie's release through directly donating to uh, his legal fees. And there is a link on our website under on our calls to action page where you can go ahead and do that. Also, if you want to just donate to the project in general, you can message me. This project has no funding. It's completely uh, funded by myself. So any support is appreciated. Up top, Frankie.